Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from Joan and Peter, written by H.G. Wells and published in 1918. This book looks at late Victorian and Edwardian England and the period just prior to World War I. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. The podcast is completely free. And it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. I want to thank one of our special listeners for becoming a Patreon during the week. Isabel Von Gina, big, big thank you to you for supporting the podcast. It helps me bring out more episodes to those who need it, but may not be able to afford it. Thanks for becoming a Patreon during the week. If the podcast helps, please subscribe and leave a review. It really does help out. You can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram at sleep. Look forward to hearing from you there and you're always welcome to say hello at the website. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Joan and Peter The Story of an Education Chapter the First Peter's Parentage Early one summer morning in England, in the year 1893, in the rain, which seemed in those days to have been going on forever, and to be likely to go on forevermore. Of Queen Victoria, there was born a little boy named Peter. Peter was a novel name then. He was before the great crop of Peters who derived their name from Peter Pan. He was born with some difficulty, His father, who had not been to bed all night, for the trouble of the birth had begun overnight about nine o'clock, 
was walking about in the garden in a dewy dawn, thinking the world very dreadful and beautiful, when he first heard Peter cry. Peter, he thought, made a little noise like a frightened hen that something big had caught. Peter's mother had been moaning, but now she moaned no more. And Peter's father stood outside and whispered, Oh God, oh damn them and damn them, why don't they tell me? Then the nurse put her head out of the window. It was a casement window with white roses about it. Said, everything's all right. I'll tell you when to come in and vanished again. Peter's father turned about very sharply so that she should not see he was fool enough to weep, and went along the flagged path to the end of the garden, where was the little summer house that looked over the weald. But he could not see the weald because his tears blinded him, All night, Peter's father had been thinking what an imperfect husband he had always been and how he had never really told his wife how much he loved her and how indeed until now he had never understood how very much he loved her and he had been making good resolutions for the future, in great abundance, in enormous abundance, the most remarkable good resolutions, and one waking nightmare after another had been chased across his mind, Nightmares of a dreadful dark grey world in which there would be no dolly, no dolly at all anywhere, even if you went out into the garden and whistled your utmost, and he would be a widower with only one little lonely child to console him. He could not imagine any other woman for him but Dolly. The last trailing vestige of those twilight distresses vanished when presently he saw Dolly, looking tired indeed, but pink and healthy, with her hair almost roguishly astray, and the room full of warm daylight from the dawn-flushed sky, full of fresh southwest air from the Sussex Downs, 
full of the sense of invincible life. And young Master Peter, very puckered and ugly and red and pitiful, in a blanket in the nurse's arms, and Dr. Fremerson smirking behind her, entirely satisfied with himself and the universe and every detail of it. When Dolly had been kissed and whispered to, they gave Peter to his father to hold. Peter's father had never understood before that a baby is an exquisite thing. The parents of Peter were modern young people, and Peter was no accidental intruder. Their heads were full of new ideas, new that is in the days when Queen Victoria seemed immortal and the world settled forever. They put Peter in their two sunniest rooms. Rarely were the windows shut. His nursery was white and green, bright with pretty pictures and never without flowers. It had a cork carpet and a rug displaying amusing black cats on pink and he was weighed carefully first once a week and then once a month until he was four years old. His father, whom everybody called Stubbo, came of an old Quaker stock. Quakerism, in its beginnings, was a very fine and wonderful religion indeed, a real research for the kingdom of heaven on earth, a new way of thinking and living, but weaknesses of the mind and spirit brought it back very soon to a commoner texture. The Stubland family was among those which had been most influenced by the evangelical wave of the Westland time. Peter's great-grandfather, Old Stubland, the West of England cloth manufacturer, was an emotional person with pietistic inclinations that nearly carried him over at different times to Plymouth Brethren, to the Westland Methodists and to the Countess of Huntington's connection. Religion was his only social creation. Most other things he held to be sinful and his surplus energies went all into the business. He had an aptitude for mechanical organisation, 
and started the Yorkshire factory. His son, still more evangelical and still more successful, left a business worth well over £200,000 among 13 children, of whom Peter's father was the youngest. Stublands became a limited company with uncles Rigby and John as directors and the rest of the family was let loose each one with a nice little secure 600 a year or thereabouts from Stubland debentures and Stubland ordinary shares to do what it liked in the world. It wasn't of course told that it could do what it liked in the world, that it found out for itself. In the teeth of much early teaching to the contrary, that early teaching had been predominantly prohibitive There had been no end of thou shalt not, and very little of thou shalt. An irksome teaching for young people destined to leisure. Mankind was presented waiting about for the judgment day, with Satan as busy as a pickpocket in a crowd, Also, he offered roundabouts and coconut shies. This family doctrine tallied so little with the manifest circumstances and natural activity of the young Stublins that it just fell off their young minds. The keynote of Stubbo's upbringing had been a persistent, unanswered why not to all the things he was told not to do. Why not dance? Why not go to theatres and music halls? Why not make love? Why not read and quote this exciting new poetry of Swinburne's? The early 90s were a period of careless diastole in British affairs. There seemed to be enough and to spare for everyone, given only a little generosity. Peace dwelt on the earth forever. It was difficult to prove the proprietorship of Satan in the roundabouts and the coconut shies. There was a general belief that one's parents and grandparents had taken life far too grimly and suspiciously, a belief which, indeed, took possession of Stubbo before he was in trousers. 
His emancipation was greatly aided by his sister Phyllis, a girl with an abnormal sense of humour. It was Phyllis who brightened the Sunday afternoons when she and her sister Phoebe and her brothers were supposed to be committing passages of scripture to memory in the attic by the invention of increasingly irreligious limericks. Phoebe would sometimes be dreadfully shocked and sometimes join in with great vigour and glory. Phyllis was also an artist in misquotation. She began by taking a fascist view of the Ark and Jonah's whale, and as for her courage grew, she went on to the resurrection. She had a genius for asking seemingly respectful but really destructive questions about religious matters that made her parents shy of instruction. The Stubland parents had learnt their faith with more reverence than intelligence from their parents, who had had it in a similar spirit from their parents who had had it from their parents, and so forth, so that nobody had looked into it closely for some generations, and something vital had evaporated unsuspected. It had evaporated so completely that when Peter's father and Peter's aunts and uncles came in their turn as children to examine the precious casket, they not only perceived that there was nothing in it, but they could very readily jump to the rash conclusion that there never had been anything in it at all. It just seemed odd a blend of empty resonant phrases and comical and sometimes slightly improper stories that lent themselves very pleasantly to fascist illustration Stubbo, as he grew up under these circumstances, had not so much taken on the burthen of life as thrown it off. He decided he would not go into business. Business struck him as a purely avaricious occupation and after a pleasant year at Cambridge, he became quite clear that the need of the world and his temperament was art. 
the world was not beautiful enough. This was more particularly true of the human contribution. So he went into art to make the world more beautiful and came up to London to study and to wear a highly decorative blue linen blouse in private and to collect posters. People then were just beginning to collect posters. From the last stage of Quakerism to the last extremity of decoration is but a first step. Quite an important section of the art world in Britain owes itself to the Quakers and Plymouth Brethren and to the drab and grey disposition of the sterner evangelicals. It is as if that elect strain in the race had shut its eyes for a generation or so, merely in order to open them again and see brighter. The reaction of the revolting generation has always been toward colour. The pyrotechnic display of the Omega workshops in London is but the last violent outbreak of the Quaker spirit. Young Stubland, a quarter of a century before the Omega Enterprise, was already slaking a thirst for chromatic richness behind the lead of William Morris and the pre-Raphaelites. It took a year or so, and several teachers and much friendly frankness to persuade him he could neither draw nor paint. And then he relapsed into decoration and craftsmanship. He beat out copper into great wheels of pattern, and he bound books grossly. He spent some time upon lettering, and learn how to make a simplest inscription beautifully illegible. He decided to be an architect. In the meantime, he made the acquaintance of a large circle of artistic people and literary people, and became a Fabian socialist, abandoned stubland tweeds for fluffy, artistically dyed garments, bicycled about a lot. Those were the days of the bicycle, before the automobile robbed it of its glory, talked endlessly and had a very good time. 
he met his wife and married her, and he built his own house as a sample of what he could do as an architect. It was, with one exception, the only house he ever built. It was quite original in design, and almost indistinguishable from the houses of a round dozen contemporaries of Mr. Charles Voisey. It was a little low-browed white house with an enormous and very expensive roof of green slates. It had wide, low, mullioned casement windows. Its rooms were eight feet high and its doors five foot seven and all about it were enormous buttresses fit to sustain a castle. It had sun traps and verandas and a terrace, and it snuggled into the ruddy hillside, and stared fatly across the world from beyond Limpsfield, and it was quite a jolly little house to live in, when you had learnt to be shorter than five feet seven inches, and to dodge the low bits of ceilings, and the beam over the ingle nook, and therein to crown the work of the builder, Peter was born. Peter's mother came from quite a different strand in the complicated web of British life. Her people, she was brought up to call them that, were county people, but old-fashioned and prolific and her father had been the sixth son of a third son, and very lucky to get a living. He was the vicar of Long Downport, and an early widower. His two sons had gone to Oxford with scholarships, and Dolly had stayed home, a leggy, dark-eyed girl with a sceptical manner, much given to reading history. One of her brothers passed from Oxford into the higher division of the civil service and went to India. The other took to scornful reactionary journalism dramatic criticism, musical comedy lyrics, parody and drink, which indeed is almost a necessity if a man is to stick to reactionary journalism. This story will presently inherit Joan from him. 
She had a galaxy of cousins who were parsons, missionaries, schoolmasters, and soldiers. One was an explorer, not one was in business. Her father was a bookish, inattentive man who had just missed a fellowship because of general discursiveness. He could have afforded it. He would have been very liberal indeed in his theology. And like grains of pepper amidst milder nourishment, there were all sorts of sceptical books about the house. Renan's Life of Christ, Strauss's Life of Christ, Gibbon, various 18th century memoirs, Huxley's essays, much Victor Hugo, and a collected Shelley, books that his daughter read with a resolute frown, sitting for the most part with one leg tucked up under her in the chair, her chin on her fists and her elbows on either side of the volume undergoing assimilation. Her reading was historical, and her tendency romantic. Her private daydream through some years of girlhood was that she was Caesar's wife. She was present at all his battles, and sometimes when he had had another of his never altogether fatal wounds, she led the army. Also, which was a happy thought, she stabbed Brutus first, and so her Caesar, contrarywise to history, reigned happily with her for many, many years. She would go to sleep of night, dreaming of Mr. and Mrs. Imperator, driving in triumph through the gates of Rome, after some little warlike jaunt. Sometimes she drove, and also they came to Britain to drive out, the Picts and the Scots, and were quartered with her father in Long Downport, conquering Picts, Scots, Danes, and the most terrific anachronisms, with an equal stoutness and courage. The private title she bestowed upon herself and never told to any human being was the Imperatrix. As she grew up, 
she became more desirous of more freedom and education. After much argument with her father, she came up to an aunt in London and went to study science in the Huxley days as a free student at the Royal College of Science. She saw her future husband at an art student's soiree. He looked tall and bright and masterful. He had a fine profile, and his blonde hair poured nobly off his forehead. She did not dream that Peter's impatience for incarnation put ideas into her head. She forgot her duty to Caesar and imagined a devotion to art and beauty. They made a pretty couple and she married amidst universal approval. After a slight dispute whether it was to be a religious or a civil marriage, she was married in her father's church. In the excitement of meeting, appreciating and marrying Stubbo, she forgot that she had a great pity and tenderness and admiration for her shy and impulsive cousin, Oswald Sydenham, with the glass eye and cruelly scarred face, who had won the VC before he was twenty at the bombardment of Alexandria, and who had since done the most remarkable things at Niceland. It had been quite typical heroism that had won him the VC. He had thrown a shell overboard, and it had burst in the air as he threw it and pulped one side of his face. But when she married, she had temporarily forgotten cousin Oswald. She was just carried away by Arthur Stublin's profile and the wave in his hair and life. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy and I hope you're ready for sleep. If you're not quite there yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. I look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon. Until then, good night.